Welcome to another episode of Synoptis Lightning Round, where we ask six rapid-fire questions with some of the sharpest business minds talking about accelerating business value through technology, IT business alignment, and IT leadership development. Now, here's Cameron and David. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Synoptis Lightning Round. I'm Cameron Ames. I'm here with David Reddick. David, how are you doing today? I'm really uh, doing well, Cameron. It's uh, uh, episode number 10, and we have done a lot of uh, interviews with interesting people. Um, what are some of your favorite uh, uh, things we've done on the Synoptis Lightning Round over these first 10 episodes? So I think that obviously just about every conversation we've had has been unique and interesting in its own ways. One that really sticks out to me uh, is Phil Moulton. Uh, and especially uh, the books that he held up at the end. I, I see those in the background of, of your screen today. Uh, obviously, I think that Mike Martin, from a CRM perspective, he's someone that I've respected for a long time and, and known on a personal level. Uh, I, I really valued his inputs there. David, what about you? So um, Guillermo Diaz, uh, the CEO of CloudSpot, and uh, Katie Colson are both uh, friends and mentors of mine, and and uh, I'm honored to know them and to have them on our podcast was um, amazing for me. Today's guest, I, I'm also looking forward to. Uh, he is uh, one of the um, uh, initial founders of the Agile Manifesto that that uh, uh, has driven Agile software development in. Uh, software development lifecycle and affected the the, the um, way software is development developed for businesses, and so uh, this interview is a little longer than normal. But we wanted to give uh, our guest the opportunity to fully express his views, and so I'm excited to uh, present Bob Martin. Uh, David and I are going to be talking to uh, Mr. Robert Martin. Um, for those of you who don't know who Bob Martin is. Uh, he's the author of the Agile Manifesto, uh, one of the creators of the Solid Design Principles, um, and the first chairman of uh, the Agile Alliance, if I'm not mistaken, as well. Um, in addition to being uh, an ubiquitous speaker within the, the software development and architecture uh, uh, community. So uh, welcome, uh, Bob. How you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for inviting me. This sounds like fun. Awesome. So just in a few minutes, one or two minutes, tell us a little bit about what you do and who you are. Gosh, what I do and who I am. Huh? I'm a programmer. Uh, I've been a programmer for uh, 50 some odd years at this point. Um, and I've, I've interspersed my career with a number of other much less uh, satisfying and much less important things like running companies and so forth. But um, I much prefer just writing code. So... <laughs> But I'd, I'll be happy if they find me with my nose stuck between the keys one day, um, writing code for some interesting thing that I thought was cool. Uh, what do I do? Uh, nowadays, I, um, I, I do a lot of speaking like this, a lot of interviews like this, uh, especially during the pandemic. It turns out that Zoom and other tools like this allow me to continue doing what I've always done. Uh, we, we, are in, we are very fortunate in the software community to have written tools for ourselves so that we can now uh, continue working and allow other people to continue working as well. I do a lot of writing. I write uh, 
books. I'm in the middle of writing a book right now on, uh, on test-driven development. Um, I also do a fair bit of teaching on, uh, used to travel to do the teaching. Now I can do it using mechanism like this. So that pretty much takes up most of my time other than the flying that I like to do. You can see my flight simulator behind me there. Um, I like to get in an airplane and drill holes in the sky from time to time. So I'll be doing that right after I leave you, as a matter of fact. Great. So um, we like to talk about the integration of technology and business on this podcast. And what can you tell us about IT business alignment and how you see that accelerating business value? My view, <laughs> my view about software and business and society uh, might be a little, little different, or maybe I'll take a different take on it. <clears throat> 30 years ago, our society did not depend on software. Most of our businesses did not depend on software. 30 years ago, most businesses had some kind of software running in them. They might have had uh, some kind of inventory system or, or integrated payroll system or something like that, but they weren't dependent entirely on software. Today, <clears throat> everyone is completely dependent on software for virtually every activity that is performed by a human being. <laughs> There's, there is almost nothing you can do without interacting with a software system somehow. You can't cook a hot dog, you can't wash your clothes or your dishes, you can't drive your car, you can't make a phone call or watch TV, you can't buy anything, you can't sell anything, no law can be passed, no law can be enforced without software being smack in the middle of it all. So it's not just business, right? It's everything. Now business is at the heart of it. Business is where all this software came from, although government's in there as well. But the reality is, is that software has infiltrated everything. One of the symptoms of that is that the number of programmers in the world apparently doubles every five years. Uh, can you imagine business trying to absorb that many people? Um, nowadays, there's probably on the order of 100 million programmers in the world. And, and we nowadays, we look for for countries that are on the other side of the planet in order to find the staff that we need to write the code that has to be done. So it's a, a fascinating time to be in this industry. And the, the, uh, the demographic effects are, are deeply profound. Um, business and software has gotten caught up in, in the... Um, what's the best way to say this? The intersectional battle that's been going on over the last five to 10 years. Uh, if you look back in time, oh gee, uh, even to like 2000, software and politics had no cross section at all, right? It, nobody cared. <laughs> if you were writing code, that was fine. Um, businesses didn't care. Nowadays, in certain areas of the country, if you do not have the right political opinion, you cannot work at a company. If you don't have the right political opinion, you cannot speak at a conference. There have been, um, there have been folks who are 
deeply accomplished in their field who have been rejected from conferences, disinvited from conferences, simply because of a statement they may have made in a completely different context. What effect that has on business, I think, is profound. Uh, businesses are now in the midst of a turmoil trying to figure out who they're allowed to hire <laughs> and what the effects might be if they hire the wrong people. I don't know if this is the direction you wanted to take this, but these are the kinds of things that occupy my thoughts all the time. I, I, I love your uh, insight, and I think that um, the, the conflict we're seeing, uh, the divisiveness and often dividing along political lines uh, hurts both sides of the equation, the business and, and the technology. Um, so would you say this divisiveness is the biggest challenge in getting the um, IT department and the business, uh, uh, the IT uh, community and the business community in alignment? Is this divisiveness? No, there's a much bigger issue that I think is sits between um, the business and the IT community. The mm. divisiveness is is new is relatively new. It's only the last few years, and I I hope I believe and I hope it's going to burn itself out in the next two or three years. Uh, the pandemic has certainly had a uh, an interesting effect on. It. There is a much more profound issue that separates business from IT. And it comes from the fact that business uh, business does not understand IT very well. And, and when I say IT, I mean programmers. Business does not understand programmers very well. Programmers don't understand business very well. And, and that leads to a, a misapprehension of skill. Probably the best way to say it is skill. Or another way to say it would be a misapprehension of professionalism. Business will hire programmers and they presume they are hiring professionals, but they don't know what that means. Programmers believe they are professionals, but programmers don't know what that means. A professional professes something. Usually what a professional professes is a set of standards, uh, some disciplines, uh, a notion of ethics. A professional doctor takes an oath. Right? A, a professional engineer in other, in other categories take an oath of some kind. They make a promise to society at large. We programmers don't do that at all. We have no set of ethics. We have no stated ethics. We have no set of standards. There are no disciplines we all adhere to. We just write code. <clears throat> and we write code that is not very good, frankly. Most, most of the time, when, when programmers write systems, they are writing the minimum amount of quality to get it out the door. They are not writing what I would call a professionally built system. And the, the business does not know this. If the business could look under the hood most of the executives would be terrified of what they have based their companies upon. Um, the, the, uh, the house of cards that lives beneath what runs their business. <laughs> and the, this is a big problem. 
that we have begun to see. We have begun to see the effects of it. Um, so there are some simple examples. Um, Boeing. <laughs> Boeing. The, uh, the 737, although the problem with the 737 MAX 8 was a combined hardware-software problem, the fix is almost entirely software, um, which alludes to the fact that it was more of a software problem than a hardware problem. Um, you might forgive Boeing for that one, or you might forgive the software developers at Boeing for that one, since they were literally following the requirements. And yet, and yet, that's a software problem. Or um, uh, maybe a much more, more uh, um, um, relevant one is the, uh, the failures at Toyota, where uh, the, the software controlling the, the cars had a nice little bug in it that managed to kill 50 or 60 people by accelerating out of control and smashing into things uh, without the brake being able to work. Uh, that, you know, the, the, we, programmers, have, are now put in the position of being able to kill people. Uh, this is not something that was true 30 years ago. This is, this is not something any programmer thought they would be in a position to do. But now, uh, a little bit of negligence, a little bit of carelessness in just the right place, and people can die. You <laughs> uh, also have the problem of Volkswagen. Remember what happened there, where in California, the, the Volkswagens were cheating the EPA. There was literally code in the Volkswagen that would check to see if the vehicle was on an EPA test stand, and then it would alter the emission characteristics of the engine. This is lying, cheating code <laughs> written by programmers who put their fingers on the keyboard and lied and cheated. These are things that are, are, are uh, uh, profoundly affecting the, the joining of technology and business. And we have to get this under control somehow. And, and, and the burden falls on the technology side. We on the technology side have to get control of our professionalism. Business already expects it. They just don't know they're not getting it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's... If I'm hearing you correctly, what you're saying is the problem is a disconnect between the professionalism expected uh, by a business and the lack of professionalism delivered uh, by a programmer or by an IT team. So there's a, there's a converse to that where uh, if those expectations are in alignment, there can be a level of a success that uh, a lot of businesses don't see uh, through their IT departments and through their programmers. Do you have an example of, of that going well then? Oh, heavens. Um, let's see, do, do I have an external example of that going well? I've experienced it going well many times. Um, do I have an external example of it going well? I'd have to make a guess. Um, I'd have to make a guess about this. There are, there are pieces of software out there that I think are absolutely stellar, really well done. Uh, and, and one of them is a, a, a tool called ForeFlight. Now I'm a pilot uh, and ForeFlight runs on an iPad <laughs> or an iPhone. It is the most solid feature packed um, 
beautiful piece of software I think I've ever seen. I don't know what's under the hood. I don't know. I don't know whether the programmers uh, are <laughs> have been disciplined and professional. I can't. I can't tell because I can't look under the hood. But the symptoms that I see coming at me indicate that something is something very good is going on. Features that used to work continue to work in new releases. <laughs> That's a really powerful symptom that something is going well. <laughs> oh, they didn't actually break something else, uh, which normally you see in, in, in systems that are coming, you know, on a regular release cycle. Oh, they made this new thing, but they broke seven other things over here. That doesn't seem to happen with them. Um, so I, I don't want to gush any more about ForeFlight, uh, other than to say, you know, I do think there are there are companies that have gotten this right, probably based on how they hired their programmers. If I had to guess, I would say that the vast majority of those programmers are also pilots. <laughs> and so just to make sure I'm getting hearing what you're saying, you're saying one of the symptoms of misalignment would be this fragility that happens in software as iterative releases come out. Uh, the things break in the business. Yeah. A, a good sign of alignment, at least in the programming side and, and the business side would be that, that there's a stability, that the fragility doesn't exist and the company can, as the business needs new functionality and new features that can be released at the speed the business needs without facing that fragility. Yeah, that, there are two symptoms that, that uh, imply that there's this huge disconnect. Uh, one of those symptoms is fragility. And, and it's one of the few things that managers and customers can smell to tell that something's wrong under the hood, right? Every time a new release comes out, there's something else wrong with it. And, and, and that's a clear indication that something has gone wrong. The other indication is harder for customers to see, but very easy for managers to see. And it's the, the productivity of the staff itself. If the productivity is going down at a, what's the term, logarithmic rate? <laughs> or an exponential rate? If the productivity, it gets, it gets harder every release to get the same number of features done. If you have to continue to multiply the staff by some factor to get the same number of features done, there's something wrong under the hood. And many, many companies experience that, right? where the staff multiplies out of control. Mm, yeah. I've actually looked at that as a uh, inverse geometric relationship. Okay. Complexity, inverse geometric relationship to productivity. So it's in one of my books. So. Okay. All right. <laughs> so then what I'm hearing is, okay, so a company can kind of take this self-introspective view of themselves and go, uh, okay, so I'm seeing some of these symptoms in, in my own company. And so I know that something needs to change there. If someone came to you and said, okay, I'm seeing these, what do I need to do? And you were to give them just a single piece of advice. What's that one thing that they could do that would at least get them started uh, on the road to, to better alignment? Hire better. <laughs> so one, one of the problems we have is that... Um, there's an immense demand for programmers. Like I said earlier, the, the number of programmers doubles every five years. Um, what that means is that half the programmers in the world are ridiculously young. Um, the average age of a programmer in 1960 was in the 40s. 
Uh, now it's somewhere in the low 20s. And that's, that's simply because we're just pulling gobs and gobs of students out of college and throwing them into our IT staffs. And, and we've, we've gotten the impression over the last few decades that programming is for young people. Now, this is wrong. It's dead wrong, right? But that's the impression. You look around an IT staff and what you see are a bunch of 20-year-olds and maybe a scattering of 30-year-olds. And if they're not in management by the time they're 35, something's wrong with them. And that's wrong. It's dead wrong. What we, what we wish we saw is in a, in a software team is a bunch of people who are weighted more towards uh, the older side, you know, 30s and maybe into their 40s and 50s. You would like to see people with experience uh, building the systems that businesses depend upon. So my advice to businesses is to be very careful about how you hire. It is not volume that matters so much. It's experience that matters. And it would be a very wise thing to have 10 experienced people as opposed to 50 inexperienced people. You'd probably get a lot more done and it would probably be a lot better done. Fair enough, fair enough. So uh, at this point, I know that uh, you have absolutely nothing going on in your schedule, so you're, you're not working on anything right now, are you? Um, just kidding. Feel free to take a minute. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to plug, anything that you're working on or any events that you have upcoming? Is that your cell phone doing that? I bet it is. Or somebody's cell phone. Maybe it's mine. Did you hear that clicking? I did. Yeah. These things, uh, when they pull the cell towers, they emit an awful lot of power, and it can, it can screw up... Uh, uh, the electrical signals going into your microphone. I'm going to make sure that's far away. So um, what am I working on? What do I want to plug? Hmm. Well, uh, I am in the midst of writing a new book. Uh, this book is uh, a book on test-driven development. Uh, it should be, I don't know when it'll be done. Probably it'll be done uh, before the year is out. Uh, that means it'll probably be published early next year. And the title is Clean Craftsmanship. So that'll be, that'll be the next book coming out. I got one book after that I want to write, maybe two. That was my phone. <laughs> uh, I got one book coming out after that, maybe two. One, one is going to be on professionalism, just a, a rant about professionalism. Probably not a rant, but a, a treatise on professionalism. And the other one, I'm just tempted on writing a book about functional programming and Lisp. So I might write something like that just for fun. Uh, um, other than that, uh, no, there's not a lot of things I want to, uh, to, to announce. I, I, am, I am one of the contributors at cleancoders.com. I do a lot of videos there. Uh, and people can purchase those videos and, and hear, you know, very long-term lectures. I think there's like 70 or 80 hours of, of fairly deep software lecture over there now. And my son has just uh, taken over as the, uh, the CEO of that company and is beginning to open a, a studio where uh, he's going to take on projects using the same principles and so on. So uh, that's Clean Coders Studio. So if you go to the cleancoders.com website, you'll see all of that activity there. Thanks, so cleancoders.com for uh, uh, lectures and, and, and long form uh, learning items, and then also the studio as well, Clean Coder Studio for projects. Awesome. Well, I'd like to uh, close the interview by thanking you 
and I sincerely appreciate your contribution to the software community at large. I was uh, um, the the as a uh, as a manager of developers and and uh, um, one of the people who should not be writing code. Um, I do know that that your contribution, software the development in the world, wouldn't be the same animal it is right now if uh, without your thinking and leadership. And I appreciate. And, uh, I am honored to have spoken to you today. Um, uh, ladies and gentlemen, this, this has been Uncle Bob. And we want to say thanks again to Mr. Bob Martin for uh, joining us on the Synoptis Lightning Round podcast. So David, uh, obviously there's a lot to unpack there. Certainly this is a lot more than what we would normally have on one of these. Uh, what first impressions, what, what did you get out of that? So one of the things that uh, Uncle Bob said that I've, I've seen over and over is when IT departments aren't able to move at the speed the business needs them to move, they throw bodies at it, right? Uncle Bob talked about hiring 50 programmers when they should be hiring 10 experienced programmers. And I've seen that, I've, I've seen that over and over and over again, and they just continually beat their head against that same wall. And there's a real need for experienced programmers, which is one of the reasons that you work so well with uh, um, our, our Salesforce customers. You hold 14 Salesforce certifications. That's an, a, a massive number of certifications for one individual to hold. And I always tell our, I, I tell our customers, if Cameron can't do it in Salesforce, you can't do it in Salesforce. And uh, so your experience in that, in that technical arena adds a lot of value to our customers. Thanks, David. What about you? So for me, I think that uh, in a very similar vein, um, certainly the concept of uh, excellence within a discipline has been uh, discussed numerous times throughout, um, uh, throughout academia, whether that's 10,000 hours and that concept that's been floated around, uh, or the idea that, that uh, Uncle Bob brought up that Programming is naturally, at least in its current state, a field of novices, just based on the fact that every five years, the amount of programmers doubles, which by definition, half the programmers have less than five years of experience. So there's certainly a, a threshold of hours that uh, a lot of uh, not only programmers, but just in IT in general, that, that 10,000 hour threshold probably hasn't been met by a majority of individuals within the space, at least for those who are first starting out in their, in their careers. David, obviously, I've, I've been with you for uh, a number of years in, in a number of roles. And so obviously, I've seen you have those 10,000 hours and, and go way beyond those as well. Uh, what are some of the things that you've done or you've seen within those? So is that your way of saying I'm really old? I, I didn't say anything. <laughs> I mean, the gray hairs, I earned it. I earned it. Um, yeah, I've got, I've got uh, uh, 50, 60,000 hours in my career uh, between uh, technical and, and leadership. Um, I've worked in a number of verticals, and that breadth of exposure has given me, um, uh, rather than having a myopic view on a particular business, I, I'm able to take concepts from from one business and apply to another. And I really think the, uh, um, one of the, uh, things that I've taken away from my doctoral studies is, 
is the ability to think critically about about businesses and and try to help them think critically about um, what they're doing and not just come in with a, a with a band-aid but with a holistic solution and and that's why we work so well together um, I, I uh, really enjoyed speaking to Bob Martin. I think this was an awesome interview and I hope uh, our viewers enjoyed it. Thanks everyone. Thank you for watching Synoptis Lightning Round. For more episodes of Synoptis Lightning Round, visit synoptis.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.